You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 20th of November. And as Ras Al Khaimah comes in the top five of best global cities for expatriates, we found out why it's one of the best places in the world to live and work, with two organisations looking to help small businesses thrive in the Emirates. Meanwhile, after the tragic death of a young man in an off-roading accident in the desert, we found out how you can dune bash safely with Fateh Ahmed, with the Dubai Off-Roaders Desert Driving Institute. And as the International Space Station celebrates its 25th birthday, we looked at what the 550 billion dirham craft has done for humanity with engineer Yusuf Farouk, who works at the CubeSat Lab at the Sharjah Academy of Astronomy, Space Sciences and Technology. And efforts to rescue 40 workers trapped inside a collapsed tunnel in India have now entered their second week. We spoke to survival expert John Hudson about how the men can live through that disaster. And Chris McCarty, our sports editor, joined us with all of the latest stories from the weekend, including the finale of the Cricket World Cup and also the first F1 Grand Prix in Las Vegas. Hello there and welcome back to the programme. Good to have you with us this bright and breezy Monday morning. It is the 20th of November and we are turning our attention now to the Northern Emirates because Ras Al Khaimah is officially now one of the best global cities for expatriates to live and work. Yep, you didn't hear that incorrectly. Ras Al Khaimah, you know, one of the smaller Northern Emirates. But it is according to a report by the global network Internation. Now, they say that job opportunities and high quality of life pushes it up the rankings. Uh, So it comes fourth on an index of 49 destinations, followed by Abu Dhabi in fifth position and Dubai in 11th place. Now, Internations polled more than 12,000 people in 172 nations and territories. And they asked questions based on five categories. So you had uh, quality of life. There was ease of settling in, uh, working abroad, there was personal finance, and then they have this special expatriate sort of essentials index, which covers things like digital life, administration topics, housing and language. Now, in the next few minutes, we're going to be looking to discuss what it is about Ras Al Khaimah uh, from their point of view, you know, that, that makes uh, small and medium-sized businesses can thrive in Ras Al Khaimah. We're going to speak to Georgina Kelly. She is the CEO of the RAC Entrepreneurs Network Business Group. She also works there as a business coach and sales trainer. We're also going to speak to Majib Ur-Rayman. Now, he's the owner of the Rotana Business Centre, and they provide office and desk space and also services for businesses that are registered uh, in Ras Al Khaimah. A really great person to, to speak to because he has 300 clients. And in fact, we're going to go to Majib now. He's joined us on the phone. Uh, Majib, how are you? Thank you very much for getting on the line with us. We're delighted to have you on the agenda. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting Georgia. Um, uh, We are delighted to to be on your show. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, tell me, what led you to first set up your business in Ras Al Khaimah? Because you must have been... You know, you must have seen a gap in the market, ultimately. Uh, well, I came to Russell Hamer probably 10 years back, 
Uh, initially, I started uh, working in Dubai. Uh, my first year was in Dubai, but as soon as I uh, came to Russell Hema, I was invited by my some friends here. I saw that the the, the life in Russell Hema is is very peaceful. Uh, there's no traffic. The, the the rentals are quite low, and uh, you know there's no red tapeism as we talk about red tapeism everywhere. The authorities are like easily accessible. And that led me set up my first business. I initially worked probably seven years here. And just back in 2021, uh, we set up a Rotana business center. We have got uh, even several other companies here. We have got a real estate company, Rotana Real Estate. We've got a finance company called uh, Easy Finance. So it's all about, you know, convenience. That that made me more. And every day, my confidence in Rafael Khema is growing. Is Like, we just want to be here. You know, and we have started using a term called Rakpreneur. So we call ourselves Rakpreneurs. I love that. And you mentioned there the red tape. So, you know, what are the positives when it comes to setting up a business? Because considering that you provide desk space and office space, that means that you must really be at the very centre of startups, basically, in Ras al-Khaimah. Well, we, we have taken, uh, you know, one step ahead of what other people are doing. And uh, let's say when it comes to an office, not I don't provide only office. I provide a, a complete solution. Let's say if a client comes to me and let's say they, say they want to set up a company, we take them through the whole journey of setting up a company, uh, getting an office, getting all the permits, even arranging their website, arranging their social media marketing, and even giving them some leads to, to start up their business, you know. Let's say I have a contractor, he'll set up his company with me. Uh, so you get that sense there that there is a, a real community of SMEs growing in Ras al-Khaimah. Have you seen a recent boom? Because it is so interesting that Ras al-Khaimah is beating even Abu Dhabi and Dubai in this survey. You wouldn't really expect Ras al-Khaimah to necessarily be making headlines in global surveys. But, but here it is. Ras al-Khaimah indeed is making headlines everywhere. Let it be hospitality, let it be business, let it be industrial uh, growth. Uh, recently, there was a survey that Ras al-Khaimah is the fourth best city to live uh, for expats. Well, we, we are living the Iraq dream. We, we, we welcome everybody to come and explore. As far as business is concerned, it's a, it's a diversified hub. Let's say a businessman needs, if either they're from service industry or manufacturing or whatever they're doing, we've got all those zones here. We have got an educational zone. We've got an industrial zone. We have, we have got all sorts of zones. We have got a business zone. And, you know, Russell Schema has got five licensing issuing bodies. When we talk about licensing issuing bodies, first thing, we have got Department of Economic Development for the mainland licenses. Second, we have got Russell Hema Tourism Authority, which is taking care of tourism-related business activities. Third, we have got Rakis, a very well-known free zone all across the world. And then we have got RAC ICC taking care of offshore company setups. And recently, there has been a great step by the, the Russell Hema leadership. They have launched a free zone called Russell Khema Digital Assets Oasis for the cryptocurrency, blockchain, cybersecurity, let it be uh, any sort of, you know, latest trends and developments. So the new free zone RAGDAO uh, is the best place to be. There was a massive event last month. 
even the, the Binance and Leonine, everybody was there from all across the world. Uh, very, very exciting to hear about the launch of that new free zone, which, of course, I think is uh, one of the first uh, digital free zones in the world. Majib, I'm going to just uh, we're just going to take a quick break and then I want to come back to you because I want to sure. uh, discuss what it is about the Ras al that is so appealing for small and medium sized businesses and also big business no uh, and also find out a little bit more about if somebody wants to set up in Ras al if they're considering making the move, for example, from Dubai or Abu Dhabi because they're just finding costs are rising, especially in Dubai, very, very quickly. We will come back to you in the next few minutes. Majib Ur-Roman there. He is the owner of the Rotana Business Centre. We're also going to be joined shortly by Georgina Kelly, who is the CEO of the Rack Entrepreneurs Network Business Group. She also works as a business coach and a sales trainer. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to your Agenda program. And we are in the midst of a fascinating conversation about, frankly, what is so great about Ras al Because it is now officially one of the best global cities for expatriates to live and work. That is according to researchers from the global network Internations, who say job opportunities and a high quality of life pushes it up the rankings. Uh, yep. Ras al has come fourth in that index, with 49 other destinations in the survey. It's followed by Abu Dhabi in fifth position and Dubai in 11th. So let's just pause for a moment there. Ras al has beaten Dubai and Abu Dhabi for being the best place to set up a business. Uh, we are discussing those benefits and why it is that Ras al is doing so well with two people who are helping small and medium-sized businesses thrive in the Emirate. I'm joined on the line by Georgina Kelly. She is the CEO of the Rack Entrepreneurs Network Business Group. She also works as a business coach and sales trainer. And Majib Ur-Roman, who stayed with us, he is the owner of the Rotana Business Centre. And they provide uh, office and desk space and services for businesses who are registered in Ras al He has... 300 clients already to give you a sense of just how busy it is in Ras al Now, Georgina, I'm going to come to you first because you've just joined us. Um, as CEO of Rack Entrepreneurs, what is it from your point of view that seems to attract small and medium-sized businesses to the Emirate? What is so good about Rack? Hello, morning, Georgia, and thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Um, well, one of the first things I would say is obviously location-wise. For any business out there looking to set, set up, um, they're looking to see what the structure is like. You've got to bear in mind that we are at the crossroads of Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and obviously Europe. We've got fantastic connections all around the place. So for anybody to move goods and services, they have the infrastructure in place. We've got a fantastic airport here with uh, great cargo facilities. We've also got a wonderful RAC Port Authority, and um, they uh, are doing an enormous enormous good things down there and are actually one of the largest employers in the Emirate of Ras al I would also say it's easier, much easier for particularly small and medium-sized organizations to set up a business in Ras al whether it's onshore or whether it's offshore. It's easy. It's extremely affordable. I've, I've, I've lived in Dubai myself and in fact, I have a my DED license for one of my my businesses. And I know the difference in costs between having a DED license in Russell Kamer and in Dubai. And it's 
it's it is actually quite quite a lot and immensely measurable. I would also say that Russell Gamer is looking at people who are innovative, who've got new ideas that they want to get off the ground. Uh, people sort of using technology, AI, and that is very much prevalent. The other thing is that we have a fantastic, well-educated workforce that's actually here. Gone are the days when you would set up a biz here and then you think, how on earth am I going to staff it? I need specialists in certain fields. We are already here because we have bought property here. We are living here. We're part of the structure. Uh, many people moved here some years ago because this growth has not just happened. This growth has actually really been happening over the last 10 years and certainly concentrated within the last five. So those are, I would say, modern infrastructure, fantastic location, um, great communication, excellent, well-educated people, access to wonderful universities and colleges. I myself have worked with them when we're looking at research and various other things. So we work directly with them. And so do many of uh, the businesses who are members of RAC Entrepreneur Group as well. So Georgina and Majib, we've, we've spoken to you both now about the business case for setting up in Ras al Khaimah. Majib, how about the quality of life? You know, have you moved there with your family? You said you moved there about a decade ago. Are you happily living in Ras al Khaimah or, or the, or the environs? Uh, well, yes, we are living the Iraq dream. Me, I've got a son. Um, when, it, when we think about living somewhere, we, we, we look into certain things, you know, which, which let's say, where's the, where's the school, where's the hospital, how, uh, how convenient uh, uh, is it going to be from place A to place B. So in terms of everything, the, the rentals, let's say, if you, if you take a 5 BHK villa in Dubai, it's going to be more than 200,000 or 300,000 dirhams per annum, the, the rental. Here we are paying like fifty thousand. So, so every in, in terms of everything, it's it's very convenient. You, you feel peaceful here, literally. Like you are comfortable. You you don't you're not feeling stressed about okay if I have to go from place A to place B, or oh, I have to think about it. There will be traffic. There's no such thing as traffic uh, as far as Russell Khaimah is concerned. It's it's quite peaceful everywhere. I have to say that is a big that has become even more of a big deal, I think, over the last few, uh, well, the last few months here in Dubai, where we all are struggling against uh, a massive sort of influx of new people, which is great to have them in the Emirates. It's great to see Dubai booming. But I have to say it is awful on the roads. There's no other way of describing it. Um, so, Georgina, tell me, obviously, you live in Ras al Khaimah as well. From your point of view, is it a good place to to live as well as to work? Absolutely. There's something for everybody here. Um, we have uh, quite a lot of sports going on. We have a lot of events going on. There's something for children. There's something for families. Um, RAC Department of Tourism has done a fantastic job in promoting the Emirate as a tourist destination. And we, who are the residents, we obviously get the chance to use all of all of these facilities as well. Um, we also have, um, I would say, it's also a very caring society because we are a much smaller population. Um, it feels like we're living in a large village rather than a city, if you know what I mean. That, there's a bit of dichotomy there because we are growing. But um, we we haven't got too big for our boots. 
that uh, we don't care for each other and we recognize that. Um, if you genuinely put your hand up and say, look, I need help with X, Y, Z, somebody somewhere will say, I know somebody who can actually help you. And um, it's very difficult to be lonely in Ras Al Khaimah. And sometimes that can happen when you're in larger cities. Um, but because, as I said, we're smaller groups, um, it's very, we've got a lot of Facebook groups, community groups, and we've got something for the older people. We've got people who play different sports, whether it's golf, whether it's cricket, whether it's rugby, football, ladies sports is huge, absolutely huge. And uh, we actually have a very active ladies football team. Um, my husband is uh, the chairman of uh, Rack, Rack Rugby, Rugby Club, and they've recently set up some new initiatives for sports for young people and ladies, expats and Emiratis. Um, also, another thing, which I think is absolutely brilliant, is that it's extremely easy to get to know the local population. I'm talking about Emirati population, particularly if you're if you're an expat. We all hang out in the same cafes. We're as nosy about each other as they are about us. We have a chat with each other. We meet up with each other. We we visit each other's homes. Certain times during the year, during Ramadan and Eid, um, there are certain cultural events that go on so that we are introduced to them. We have people who uh, have different events going on so that that bridge is actually crossed. And uh, I just think it's also, we have peace of mind. Mm. I mean, you have the mountains, you have the sea, um, and we have peace of mind. There's somewhere to go if you want to be quiet. You can go into the desert. You can go to uh, many of the open beaches, and nobody is there at all. You're on your own. I have to say, it does. Every time I talk about Ras Al Khaimah and learn more about it, it does become even more encouraging uh, as a, or even more attractive as a destination. Uh, Majib, Georgina, thank you both for joining me on the line today. It's been a great pleasure speaking to both of you and finding out more about how to do business in Ras Al Khaimah. That was Majib Rahman, who is the owner of the Rotana Business Centre, and Georgina Kelly, the CEO of Rack Entrepreneurs Network Business Group, who also works as a business coach and sales trainer. Thank you both. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the radio. Welcome back to The Agenda. Turning our attention now on the show to a big local story because a dune site popular with off-road drivers has been closed in Sharjah following a fatal accident on Friday. Now, police have stopped access to the Al Faya area of the Emirates Central region to prioritise public safety and security. That is after a young man died and another one was injured in that off-roading accident. Now, no further details have been released yet of the accident, but officials say it must be a reminder to the wider community of the risks that the desert presents. They say no one should head off-road without the correct equipment and a thorough understanding of the safety rules and regulations. But what exactly are those requirements? I mean, so many of us head out into the desert now, the weather is good. Many of us also get stuck in the sand. So where can members of the public go into the desert safely? And more importantly, where can they learn more in order to safely explore the Emirates? Earlier, I sat down with Fatah Ahmed, who is a founding member and the CEO of the Dubai Off-Roaders Desert Driving Institute, who explained that accidents in the desert happen more than some people might realise. Sadly, it's not unusual. And because the off-roading community is very close-knit, we heard about it straight after it happened. 
this is quite a common occurrence especially in alfaya dune where it happened because even even a couple of years ago the government had closed the dune for a similar incident and such similar incidents happen in these popular spots where there are tall dunes right next to the road and this encourages people to go and play on them and when i say play they're being irresponsible so that brings me to the question of how can you play responsibly in the sand dunes because of course we are now in this lovely winter season so first i would like to say that i don't want this incident or such similar incidents to discourage people from going into the sand or into the mountains because this is a beautiful activity i started this activity back in 96 with my father and he founded the club the bawa forest for the sole purpose of sharing this beautiful activity with everyone it it's can be a source of sustained happiness and well-being and people should not get demotivated by these accidents at the same time these accidents are a result of lack of knowledge and experience so basically it comes down to starting your journey in offroading in the right way if you start with learning the right techniques if you start in an environment which is responsible and other people around you are responsible then that's those are the values that one adopts and one can be safe especially in these kind of dunes for example yesterday i was in a place called soihan and there is a very popular playing spot of this kind nagara hill and when we were crossing that point one of my students asked me if i wanted to play there and i told him that i never play in such places and this is a very very popular thing that in our group that i never play in these kind of places is because playing in these kind of places encourages such behavior from others as well and my objective is to discourage such behavior so i never indulge in this kind of activity i only have my fun when nobody's watching so when you talk about indulging in certain activities i have seen i think probably tiktok videos or instagram videos of people driving up what look like impossibly tall dunes and they're not doing it on their own you're right there's lots of people around watching and i i mean it looks like the car's going to topple over every time it it goes up so yes so the videos that you might have seen they probably are from saudi or in liva because those are the really tall dunes but if a person knows what they're doing then it is not dangerous at all so again comes back to learning the right techniques in rock crawling and in other sport of this kind people often talk about the line the wheel placement rpms all of these things but somehow this does not translate the same way in sand driving in the way that it does people often think that it's only momentum and speed that you have to rely on to drive in the sand which is not the case if you're relying on momentum and speed solely that means that there is no technique and that also means that that person is relying on luck and in any adventure sport if a person is relying on luck it's never a good place to be in i have to admit i hardly ever drive in the desert i've seen too many people get stuck and for me that just ruins the afternoon so i just i so i just don't don't tend to do it but i but the, the the only sort of piece of technique that i suppose i picked up from what people say to me is that you don't slow down 
because that's when you get stuck. And just that piece of advice makes me nervous because, of course, if you're driving around and, and you're having to go fast in case you get stuck, then you're naturally in a in a sort of dangerous position, aren't you? So that is a very good point you made. That means that whoever told you that does not actually know how to off-road properly. Because if you're relying on speed and momentum, then there is no technique. Again, goes back to my point of relying on luck. So the whole concept of our company, the BioForce Desert Driving Institute, we have different level of courses, right from the essential course for beginners to intermediate, advanced, and so on. And the whole philosophy that we teach in our courses is that even at an advanced level, you don't rely on speed and momentum. You rely on technique. Because if there is technique, then you don't have to go fast. You can slow down. You can be in control. Uh, there are no sudden jumps or surprises that you face. And I'm glad that you made this point because a lot of people shy away from this activity because of similar preconceptions. And this does not have to be the case. So obviously, 99.9% of people who off-road sadly rely on momentum and speed. But there is that 0.1% of us that exist who have been doing this for 25 years and who have realized that you don't have to rely on momentum and speed. There are better ways to do it. Fateh Ahmad there, a founding member and the CEO of the Dubai Off-Roaders Desert Driving Institute. We are going to catch up with him a little bit more just after the break because I wanted to get advice from him on how we should be driving in the desert to stay safe. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Always good to have you with us talking about off-roading on the programme this morning. I have to admit, and I don't want to sort of, you know, I might not make any friends saying this, but whenever I go out to the desert, I find the off-roading guys, and it nearly is always guys, a real pain. They don't seem to be very safe. They don't seem to pay attention to families who are uh, picnicking. And and frankly, one of the best things about going into the desert is letting the children sort of roam free. And then if you hear the sound of an engine coming, you sort of freeze because your children have run over about three or four dunes. You can't see them. And frankly, you're scared that one of these crazy dune bashers is just going to run over them because they're not paying attention or they're not in control. And I think that is one of the reasons why this story uh, from over the weekend has really, you know, struck a chord, I I think, in me and probably in lots of people who read about it, lots of people who are listening now. Um, Because... Uh, I mean, if you haven't heard about it, if, you, if you've only just tuned in, um, uh, there was a, a young man killed and another, you know, properly injured in an off-roading accident in Sharjah on Friday night. Um, it, they, the police stopped access to the Al Fire area and it was in a very, very popular dune site. Um, and it sort of prompted the conversation around the safety of off-roading. Uh, police say it's a reminder that no one really should be going off-road into the desert without the correct equipment and a thorough understanding of the safety rules and regulations. But let's be honest, we all know that you know people we know go out there and either get, I mean, nine times out of ten, they don't hurt themselves or anyone else, but they do get stuck badly stuck. And that's because they don't know what they're doing. Uh, I mean, if you've grown up in Europe, you've no idea how to drive in sand. And in fact, I've just been hearing from Fateh Ahmed, who is the founding member and CEO of the Dubai Off-Roaders Desert Driving Institute, that the one piece of advice that I've received about driving in sand, which is that, for goodness sake, don't slow down because that's when you'll get stuck, is actually 
the wrong piece of advice. So anyway, we uh, we spoke to him a little earlier this morning because he had a meeting around about now. So I spoke to him about seven o'clock this morning and he explained that while everyone should enjoy and can enjoy the natural surroundings, you know, get out into the desert, it is important to treat the risks of off-roading with the respect that they deserve. The first thing I would like to say is Just because a person has purchased a 4x4 does not mean that person can safely go into the desert. This is, again, a very popular misconception. The same way, just because you have a boat, you wouldn't go out in the sea all on your own without any prior information or knowledge or experience. The same way, just because you have a Jeep Wrangler or a a very capable 4x4, it does not mean that it is okay to go out on your own. Again, there are a lot of other people who are training who need some training themselves. So one has to be careful about which training institute they pick. But the best would be to do at least a beginner level course with an institute. And then it would give people the proper knowledge to deflate the tires, to know which route to take. And there are a lot of these well-established tracks that lead out to very beautiful camping spots, which can be shared by the institute or, or whoever the instructor is to the student. And that way, the student is safe in whichever environment they're in. There are some people who go out to the desert to enjoy a picnic and, and hang out and they let the children play around. And they find these dune drivers, frankly, a pain. They seem dangerous. They make a lot of noise. They seem to be bad for the environment. Do you think that maybe there ought to be certain places in the desert where it's allowed and certain places where it's banned, for example? That's a very good point. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this up. So the driving in the desert or in the mountains should be about attaining peace and tranquility. It shouldn't be about showing each other's skill set or, or ego clashes. This is sadly what has happened. So back in 2003 or back in 96, when I started off-roading with my father, this wasn't the case. We all used to go out in the desert to create real relationships, to create an environment for everybody, to create well-balanced individuals. But lately, what has been happening is everything has been about modifications and a lot of engine power and climbing the tallest dune and it always comes down to one person climbs a dune and then the other person has to show that person that no I can do it better which is absolutely wrong this is not the point of off-roading the off-roading should be about finding peace and disconnecting from the city life so that we can be ourselves when you sit around a bonfire with real off-roaders the kind of conversations you indulge in, the kind of moments you have, are they cannot be found in the city. Because in the city, going to the gym or going for movies, these, in my opinion, are like bandages. They're not a real solution to de-stressing. Whereas off-roading can be a real solution to de-stressing. People can, can really benefit from this. And the sad part is most off-roaders are not actually off-roaders. They're children with fancy toys, sadly to say. The real off-roaders, we have a very systematic way of crossing camping points. And these are, again, these are things that one must teach others. They're not very easy to just pick up on their own. But there are proper guidelines on how to cross camping spots. If you see a family in the dunes, how do you maneuver around them? There, there are proper guidelines to this. But sadly, nobody knows and nobody bothers to find out. They just do what they do and then the whole 
offloading community is blamed for it. Fatah Ahmed there, founding member and CEO of the Dubai Offroaders Desert Driving Institute. Really fantastic to get him on the radio. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda. Now, today, the 20th of November, marks the 25th anniversary of the International Space Station. Yep, over the years, the Orbiting Space Laboratory has been home to literally dozens of astronauts who usually spend up to six months during experiments on themselves and other organisms. Now, the exercise has cost space nations 550 billion dirhams. So... Has it been worth the expense? Earlier, I caught up with engineer Yusuf Farouk. He works at the CubeSat lab at the Sharjah Academy of Astronomy, Space Sciences and Technology. And he talked us through the importance of the craft. Honestly, the International Space Station is something to celebrate not only on its birthday. It's something that we usually like to celebrate on a daily basis. So first of all, it's established good relationships diplomatically. So let's look at it from the diplomatic front. U.S. engineers and Russian engineers came together after, you know, this long silence of the Cold War. And they established this laboratory. And it's been an incubator for other starting nations to go into space as manned missions. Let's take a look at the United Arab Emirates. So without the International Space Station, the access to space to other astronauts would have been hard. So the Arabia launched their astronauts into the International Space Station. So it's been an access to space recently. And aside from that, it is the scientific contribution. So the International Space Station, again, has been a really good access to space for science. So, for example, if a university just like us is planning to design a space mission or an experiment, and instead of launching it on an individual rocket and then it goes there, there's some programs at NASA or other or the European Space Agency where they launch your scientific mission or your scientific experiment free of cost. So it's made access to space in terms of the scientific contribution better. And people usually tell us like, okay, how does that benefit me here on planet Earth? Well, your laptop or anything, your handheld devices was actually a product of the space industry. Baby food and baby formula was a product of the space industry. So there's many aspects that touch our daily lives that actually was a part of the space industry. That's a very passionate defense of the International Space Station. And obviously, it is actually not going to be up there for much longer, is it? It's about to be decommissioned. Yes, that's right. So they're thinking of decommissioning it by 2030. Well, they've been thinking of decommissioning it for a while. And then every time they just keep adding an extension to it. So let's let's hope that there is another extension. Honestly, I, I think it's made its, its money's worth. The cost of building it has been justified. And the problem is that once you decommission it, we do not have an international spaceship anymore. So you know that the Chinese have got one. The United States is working on one. The Russians are also working on one. But we really want to see a fostering of international collaboration when it comes to space. Because in space, you cannot be an individual player because we all share the same space. So we need international participation in space. And I really hope that it does not get decommissioned. Now, let's turn our attention from an old space program to a developing space program, because I understand that Elon Musk is attempting to get a rocket to the moon, but sadly had a failure over the weekend. What happened there? All right. So in space missions, it depends on how you want to look at it. Sometimes you look at it as a straight success or failure. There is no middle ground. But because this is a testing phase, I would like to call it a partial success. You have to keep in mind that what Elon Musk is doing, it's it's funny, he he did not call it a failure. 
he called it an unscheduled destruction. So let's let's put it this way. So because he's doing something anew. And usually when you're doing something anew in, in space, you need to test it once, twice, and three more times. If we're going to take a look at satellites or if we're going to take a look at other space objects that we've been working with, we really had this experience of doing it before, so we don't really fail that much. But what Elon is doing, he's trying to do something anew. He's trying to fire 33 rockets at the same time, you know, 33 rocket engines at the same time sinking them right so i think it's it's a partial success i'm not i'm not going to call it a partial failure because we build on it there was a launch recently about it was starship one i believe it was about like six months ago and then six months ago it was the scheduled mission is going to be 15 minutes and then it like blew up on the four minute mark or in the three minute mark but then this mission it blew up on the seven minute mark i'm not going to say that it blew up that that's something good but i'm just saying that as we start moving forward, we learn from the mistakes that we did. We reiterate on the design because it's it's an area that nobody has worked on. And my last space topic for you, because we've had a whole plethora of space stories, is that rumor has it there is a bag of tools currently orbiting the Earth. How did that happen? And do we need to worry about a hammer landing on our heads? It was actually the first all-female spacewalk. It happened like four days ago. So she was out on a spacewalk. Usually, you know, they tie everything, they tether everything, they clip everything together. But she might have forgotten to tie the tool bag. Now, again, that's not the first time this happened. It happened a while back. But here's the thing. Because the bag just tumbled and fell into space, you can observe it. If you have like a really good telescope, you can observe it because things shine in space. So if it's the nighttime and you look upside, you can just see like a falling stars it's, it's it's something fun to watch anyway so do we have to worry that it's going to land over our head no first of all according we did our calculation it's going to land anywhere in the first quarter of 24 so it's not going to stay in space for long that is engineer yusuf farouk who works at the cubesat lab at the Sharjah academy of astronomy space sciences and technology you're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Uh, turning your attention to an international news story now because efforts to rescue 41 workers who are still trapped inside a collapsed tunnel in India have now entered their second week. Uh, on Saturday, the, there was a new drilling machine that arrived to replace the first one that got damaged. Rescuers now say they're preparing to dig an entirely new shaft over fears that the original one was close to collapse. Now, the workers have been stuck for eight days now. They're receiving oxygen and small foods like nuts and chickpeas through a pipe, a tiny pipe. So how can they best endure this ordeal. I'm joined now by survivalist John Hudson. He wrote How to Survive Lessons for Everyday Life from an Extreme World. He joins me now on Teams. John, how on earth will these 41 men be be managing to hold it together because they're in such a tiny environment? Hi, yeah, it, it can't be easy, can it? And it's got to be, it's beyond most people's probably experience and definitely, you know, beyond a lot of our imaginations too. The um, I've, I've done a little bit of survival underground, um, it's it's all it, well it's awful you know you, you can't see very far obviously everything else gets dialed up and if you can imagine being in a confined space with 40 other people that at this time is going to be fairly unpleasant i would guess it must be very difficult indeed i mean when i was thinking about it i wondered whether along with the nuts and 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 water that mm. they're trying to put through whether they yeah, might yeah. be sedating these guys whether they whether that is an option you know if you can be given calming medicines maybe i don't think they'll be um 
sedating them necessarily. One of the problems of being in a confined space is um, carbon monoxide, which is why they're putting therapeutic oxygen through to sort of assist with their, their blood oxygen volumes. One of the side effects of any carbon monoxide poisoning or, or absorption that may have happened before they were able to do that is that it already lowers your, your breathing rate. Um, and that's why people die of carbon monoxide poisoning. It's, it's pretty um, difficult to know that this is happening as well. So it, it, carbon monoxide will bond with the haemoglobin in, in, in your blood and, and prevent oxygen absorbing. Um, and it can last for a long time after the absorption, up to like a, you know, a third of a year almost. And so I think they'll be reluctant to try and sedate anybody uh, just in case they've had some previous carbon monoxide exposure earlier in the ordeal, which they won't be able to assess necessarily from, you know, remotely. I mean, ultimately, the first and most important thing for them to get through that tiny pipe is is water, isn't it? Because you can survive for many days without food. Is that Mm. correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, totally. So there's a lot of misconceptions. Uh, based upon what what is on survival telly and you know in inverted commas reality tv what what happens with you with your body as you know is you need oxygen first which is why they've prioritized that um and, and then yes it's water but they won't be using that much water they'll be fairly sedentary at a stable temperature you know you're going to lose about one and a half liters per day if you're inactive so provided they can maintain that balance they should they shouldn't get too dehydrated if they can maintain that one and a half liters into each person per day but yeah you're absolutely right food is such a low priority it's more and i think this is the wider issue really i think the food is much more as a morale component so that they feel like they're getting fed even though it's you know lower calories than they'd be used to my goodness me it's i mean it's really the mental toll that must yes. be such a struggle how I mean, yes. what would be your advice to people? I mean, obviously, these poor guys haven't yeah. had this advice, but what would be your advice to no. people in this type of circumstance? So, so I think this advice probably goes to the guys on the other side of the collapse as well, really, because the, the worst thing that can happen in isolation, and I know that they've got 40 other people to share the space with, but that can have its, you know, it's a double-edged sword a lot of the time. The raising of false hope is the, is the worst thing. So the worst thing that could happen is if someone gets on the outside, gets that, oh, we're good a new machine you'll be out in half an hour or you'll be out in three days D- don't do that you know say we're working really hard to get to you it's going to happen as soon as we can but don't set like lines in the sand that can't be met there's a really good example if we've got time to talk about someone um who's been through this a guy called jim stockdale he was a, a u.s navy pilot who was held in the hanoi hilton for seven years and like several of those years were solitary confinement and in shackles with a, with a light bulb on and what he found was that the people who didn't survive in that kind of isolation were the ones who had false optimism, unrealistic optimism. The people who think, oh, we'll be out by Christmas and then on Boxing Day, you're still a prisoner. They, they can suffer mental collapse. That's not uncommon. It's just um, not very widely known. And so the worst thing that can happen is the raising of false hope. Absolutely, 100% maintain their hope. You know, do that, that good stuff we spoke about last time where you uh, maintain the hope plan work triangle. But definitely, definitely, definitely don't raise false hopes and give kind of uh, false exit dates that aren't 100% certain. John Hudson, always great to get you on the radio. Thank you so much for your time. That's John Hudson. Uh, He's a survivalist. He's also written the book, How to Survive Lessons for Everyday Life from the Extreme World. A good read indeed. Thank you so much for your time, John. Great pleasure to have you on the radio. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
Welcome back to the agenda. Right, let's take a look at all the sports news from the weekend because, my goodness me, it was a big one. Uh, fair to say that our sports editor, Chris McCarty, uh, was, was kept busy over the, uh, the three-day weekend. I heard him going on air straight after me on Friday uh, instead of Mark Lloyd. And I don't think he had a minute to spare throughout uh, Saturday or Sunday, what with golf, the F1, and of course... The Cricket World Cup. The finale was certainly one to talk about. And uh, a few minutes earlier, Chris McCarty, our sports editor, joined me on the line with his analysis. Good morning. Only one place to start this Monday, and that's with the Cricket World Cup. Australia, for the sixth time, are the toasts of the cricketing fraternity, not the hosts, India. In front of 100,000 fans in Ahmedabad, India came up short. They were put into bat. They made just 240. They're actually scheduled all out for 240 in their 50 overs in Australia. Yes, they had a wobble early on, but they reached their target of 241 for the loss of just four wickets. Seven overs in hand as well. It ended up being pretty comfortable. The hero of the hour, Travis Head, a century in the final. Australia, what is it? about the baggy green and this Cricket World Cup. It's a record-extending sixth World Cup title for India. Well, it's disappointment at the final hurdle. A reminder, they'd won 10 from 10 heading into it. They were overwhelming favourites, backed by a passionate capacity crowd over there in Ahmedabad. Indian conditions as well, but not for the first time in recent years. They choked at the last. You've got to go back to 2011 for the last time that they won the 50-over World Cup. That is too long of a gap for a cricketing superpower like India. There's no doubt they'll be back. They'll be licking their wounds today. But Australia, the toast of world cricket. As for the other sport over the weekend, well, not for the first time. We congratulate Novak Djokovic. He got the job done over in Turin. It is, of course, the ATP finals. He was victorious over Yannick Sinner in that final. It was a comfortable evening for the Serb, avenging his group stage loss to the young Italian, winning 6-3-6-3. And as I say that, a record seventh ATP finals title for a man who, yes, he may be 36, but he's like a fine grape. He seems to be getting better the older he gets. As for the Formula One over in Vegas, well, it was F1 fever, Las Vegas. It started farcical scenes at the start of the day. It was a fanfare by the end of it. Max Verstappen victorious for the 18th time in 21 races this year, which is just extraordinary. He had a five-second penalty. That didn't matter. The Red Bull, far too good. All eyes now turn to Abu Dhabi for the final race this coming weekend. And finally, the golf. Robbie and I were stationed there all weekend long. It is congratulations to the young 22-year-old Dane Nikolai Hoygaard victorious at the DP World Tour Championship, a final round at 64. That included five birdies in a row. That was good enough to see off the likes of Tommy Fleetwood as well as Victor Hovland and Matt Wallace too. The three of those men finishing two shots further back on 19 under. A busy weekend. You can probably hear it in the voice. I need to go and lie down. Thanks, Georgia.
<laughs> Amazing to get Chris McCarty on the radio so early on a Monday morning after such a big weekend. Uh, we are very grateful to him for bringing us up to date uh, with all of the, I mean, sporting activities. My goodness me, I can't believe, I genuinely can't believe that Australia won the Cricket World Cup after India was unbeaten all the way through. It does seem somehow unfair, I think, maybe to the Indian fans. <laughs> The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.